Chapter thirty nine and forty of Her Mother's Secret. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bridget Gage. Chapter thirty nine. A decisive interview. Sunrise on Christmas morning found all the family of Mondreer assembled in the drawing room, which had been already restored to order by the servants, and where no vestige of the previous night's festivity remained, except the beautiful evergreen decorations. Who are for church this morning? inquired Mr. Force looking around upon his assembled household. I think we all are, except perhaps Odalite, who may naturally shrink from the ordeal of appearing there so soon, replied Mrs. Force, in a tone so very subdued that it was scarcely redeemed from being that breach of good breeding, a whisper in company. But Odalite, who stood next to her mother, heard the words and replied, I must not shrink from going to church, Mamma. If people choose to stare at me, to see how I bear what they suppose to be a heavy disappointment and a deep mortification, they will do so from a kindly interest, I am sure, and they will be pleased to find that, although I may be perplexed, I am not in despair. Besides, Mamma, the longer I stay away from church, the more I shall be stared at when I go. "'You are right, my dear,' said Mr. Force, who immediately went out to give orders that all the carriages in the stables— that is to say, the family coach, the brake, and the buggy, should be got ready and brought around to take the family to All Faith Church. There were other duties to be done before they broke their fast. On this day the servants, not only of the house but of the plantation, were all called in to family prayers. The devotions were led by Mr. Force, assisted by Lee. When they were concluded, Christmas presents were distributed by the children of the family to all the Negroes present, and sent by them to all those who, from old age, infancy, or illness, were unable to attend the gathering. When all the plantation servants had retired, with gratitude and gladness, the family went in to breakfast, where they enjoyed a merry morning meal. As soon as it was over, they retired to their chambers to get ready for church. And there each one, in his or her sanctuary, found some token of the presence of Santa Claus to be first discovered and enjoyed in secret. All were more or less valuable and attractive, but among so many presents, in so large a family, but few may be noticed. Mr. Force found a warm crimson cashmere dressing-gown, the united gift of his children, an embroidered silk smoking-cap from his wife, a pair of beaded slippers from Miss Meek, and a Turkish chibouk and a can of Turkish tobacco, brought all the way from beyond seas and kept for this day by Lee. Mrs. Force found a sealskin dolman, one of the first ever made in this country, with muff and turban to match, from her husband, a satin patchwork quilt, which had been the secret work of a year from her children, an embroidered hand-screen from Miss Meek, and an elegant ivory fan, brought from Canton by Lee. Odalite received a handy edition of Shakespeare, in twelve small volumes, bound in white vellum and silver, and enclosed in a white morocco case with silver clasps from her father, a small Bible, prayer-book and hymn-book bound in white velvet, with silver clasps and enclosed in a hand-case of white morocco for church service from her mother, a very handsome and completely fitted work-box brought all the way from Canton from Lee. Lee himself received a very princely gift from his uncle, namely a fine young horse of famous stock with a handsome saddle and bridle from his aunt. These gifts were not exactly found in his chamber, only the letter conferring them on his dressing-table, a box of articles made by Odalite during the three years of his absence, namely six dozen white lamb's wool socks, knit by her own fingers, 
and each pair warranted to outlast any dozen pairs of machine-made hose. Six ample zephyr wool scarves, to be used, if allowed, during the deck-watches of the winter nights at sea. Six dozen pairs of lamb's wool gloves, six dozen pocket-handkerchiefs, with his name worked in the corners, with the dark hair of her head. All these, for their intrinsic usefulness, would have been very valuable, but for the love and thought worked into them by the dear fingers of her whom he loved, and during the long years of his absence, this box of treasures was invaluable to Lee. The wealth of the Rothschilds could not have bought it from him. Each precious item, as he turned it about in his hands, and kissed it again and again, was full of her magnetism. He put on a pair of the socks, because he loved to feel them next to him. He put one of the handkerchiefs in his bosom next to his heart for the same reason— but it would take up too much time and space to tell of all the Christmas offerings of that happy day. The children had passed the age of dolls and dolls' furniture, but they received beautiful dressing-cases, with boxes and writing-desks, all fitted up and exactly alike, except that brunette winnettes were all lined with crimson velvet or satin, and blonde elvas with blue, and they received books and trinkets suitable to their years. Miss Meeks received a pair of gold bracelets from her pupils, and a black silk dress from their parents. Even the transient guest, Mrs. Anglesia, received from Mr. and Mrs. Force a handsome set of coral and gold jewelry that exactly suited her style and taste. So no one was overlooked, and when the family reassembled in the drawing-room, before starting for church, there ensued a gay confusion, a mirthful strife, and the mutual offering and deprecating acknowledgments but at last they entered the carriages and drove away to all faith. Mr. and Mrs. Force, Odalite, and Mrs. Anglesia rode in the family coach, driven by Jake, Miss Meek and her two pupils in the buggy, driven by Wynnette, who was already a famous whip. The household servants rode in the brake. Lee, mounted on the young horse given him by his uncle, escorted the whole party, and made himself very useful in opening gates or taking down bars for the caravan. They all reached the church in good time. The party entered their pews without feeling any annoyance. If they were stared at, they did not know it. The Christmas service was always a grand jubilee, deeply interesting, highly exalting, and Dr. Peter's sermon was sure to be good, cheerful, and appropriate. After the benediction, when the congregation began to disperse, the usual neighborly greetings took place in the yard. Friends came up to wish Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to the forces and to receive the like courtesies from them. Happily, every one had the good taste to ignore the unseemly events of the previous Tuesday. And the Force family left the churchyard more at ease than they had entered it. The journey home was, therefore, very pleasant. The subsequent Christmas dinner was a festival, and the dessert was prolonged with cracking nuts, making Filipina bargains, opening sugar-kisses, and exchanging verses. It was not until after dinner that Lee got a chance to speak to Odalite, "'Will you come out for a walk with me? It is not cold,' he whispered, as they all left the dining-room. "'Yes,' she answered, "'and we will go now, or it will be too late.' And she took down her brown beaver coat and poke bonnet that always hung in the hall, ready for common use, and began to put them on. Lee took his overcoat and cap from the same rack, and speedily encased himself. Their gloves were in the pockets of their coats, and so they were soon ready, and in two minutes opened the hall door and left the house.' It was a fine winter twilight. The sun had just set, and the western hemisphere was all aflame with the afterglow. The moon had just risen from behind the deep blue waters of the bay, and was shining broad and full from a rosy gray sky.
Though the woods were bare, and the earth was brown with winter, the scene was pleasant in its soft, subdued color and veiled brightness. CHAPTER Forty, AGAIN BY THE WINTRY SEA "'We will walk down by the shore. It is always pleasant there,' said Lee. "'Yes, let us go there. It will be too dark in the woods, but there will be moonlight on the sea and shore.' And they walked through the east gate, and down the wooded hill to the waterside. From an instinct of delicacy, Lee turned to the south, which led in an opposite direction from his own home. But Odalite stopped him. "'Let us walk north toward Greenbushes. We cannot go so far, because it is too late. But it will be pleasant to walk in that direction, Lee.' "'Will it now, to you, Odalite?' he asked, surprised and pleased, yet anxious. "'Very, very pleasant,' she answered brightly. He turned with her at once, and had courage to ask, "'Will you take my arm, Odalite?' She took it at once, and when he held her hand close to his throbbing heart, she did not draw it away. What should he say to her? How should he understand her? She seemed content, and even happy, to be alone with him. She seemed exactly as she had been before the tempter came between them, content and happy, though it had only been four days since she had been suddenly and effectually separated from the man whom she had declared that she wished to marry. She had said that no one forced her to marry him. But did any one force her to wish to marry him? That was the question. Was his dream or vision at sea a prophetic one? Was Wynnette's and Elva's belief a true inspiration? And had Odalite, in her consent to marry Anglesia, thrown herself into the waves to escape the flames? And now that she was happily rescued from the waves, was she glad? He looked at her again. Her face was calm and bright, and it was a true index to her mind, which was also calm and bright. Why should it not be? She had been saved from a fate worse than death, saved from the slavery of an abhorrent marriage. She was free, with a sense of freedom that she had never fully enjoyed, until she had lost her liberty, and regained it. Her own and dear mother's mortal enemy, whose presence, even on the continent, crowded her as it did Wynnette, was gone across the sea. And she knew nothing, poor child, of the chain the man had thrown around her mother's, his victim's neck before he went away. Mrs. Force had never told that dread secret to her daughter. It was not necessary to do so, at least not yet. So she let Odalite recover her cheerfulness, and enjoy her life, if it were only in a fool's paradise. So Odalite reveled in a fanciful freedom, which to her was delightfully real. Lee looked at her, watched her, studied her. Her eyes were bright with pleasure, her cheeks flushed with health, her lips smiling in mirth. Her step was so light that she seemed to dance along the sands, and her voice was so fresh and cheerful that it was impossible to believe that she cherished any other feeling on the subject of her broken marriage than one of delight at her enfranchisement. "'Odalite,' he said at length, "'you seem very happy.' "'I am very happy,' she replied, beaming. "'Then you have not the least regret for that—there, stop just there, Lee, dear. Never mention that nightmare dream to me while you live,' said Odalite, in a commanding but jubilant tone. "'Well, then I won't.' Goodness knows I am not so fond of him as to want to ring the changes on his name. It was nothing but a nightmare dream, Lee, and I wished to forget all about it. Then you never loved him? Loved him, interrupted Odalite, with flushing cheeks and flashing eyes. Whoever imagined that I could ever love him? I never told you that I loved him, Lee. No, by Jove, you never did. You never told me that you loved him, and you did tell me that you would never let him kiss you exclaimed Lee, with a new ring of joy in his voice, and a new light of joy in his eyes. "'No,' said Odalite, 
It was my greatest merit and my worst fault that I did not love him when I consented to marry him. I was wrong, under any inducement, to consent to such a union. But, Lee, if I had loved him, I must have been something of a kindred spirit to him. And that, you know, I am not. Odalite, said the young man, taking her hand between both of his, and trying to calm his tumultuous feelings, and to speak quietly, while they slackened their pace and walked very slowly. Odalite, darling, I had a long interview with your father yesterday, in which we talked over all these matters. He believes that your fancy and imagination were fascinated, captivated by the arts of that man, who shall be nameless, because I cannot bear to utter, nor you to hear, the accursed name. Your father, however, gave me permission to have this final talk with you, on certain conditions which I promised to keep. Odalite looked up, anxiously, into his face. "'My darling,' he said, as he caressed the hand he held, "'when I asked you to take this walk with me to-night, it was because I knew that you were free in hand, at least, to receive the proposal that I came to make you. It was not that we should immediately renew the old engagement that bound our hearts and souls together from our childhood.' up to the time when the stranger came between us. For I did not know then that your heart, as well as your hand, was free. I thought that it would take time to heal the wound that I supposed you had received in the sudden rupture of your marriage, but that, in time, your woman's pride, your sense of honor, and your conscientiousness would enable you to conquer any lingering interest you might feel in that man. So I came here not to plead for an immediate renewal of our precious betrothal, but only to plead as the best grace you might give me, that we might correspond as brother and sister while I am at sea, doing my duty there, and waiting for the time when we may, please heaven, be united in a dearer, closer love. But, Lee, she broke out impulsively, I love you, I love you, I have never ceased to love you, Lee. And then she would have given words to have recalled the hasty, if true, words. But they were spoken, and every tone of her voice, every glance of her eyes, Every play of her features gave such unquestionable evidence of their truth that she never could have repudiated them. Then, oh, my dearest one, why were you ever beguiled into consenting to marry that man, into thinking that you could possibly live with that man? Oh, Lee, I was never for a moment beguiled. I never for one moment imagined that I could live with him. I knew I could not do so. I knew I should die under the upas tree of his hateful presence. I knew that it was my life I laid down to save others whom I did love. "'Odalite!' he exclaimed, amazed and overwhelmed by her passion. "'Lee, oh, Lee, I have told you more than I ever meant to have told any one. The truth burst from my heart unawares. Forget what I have said, Lee. Oh, forget it!' "'Never, never, never can I forget these words, dear Odalite, those words that have revealed to me a glimpse of a soul braver, nobler, more self-immolating than I ever believed could live in the form of mortal man, not to say in that of a fragile girl, said the young man, fervently, earnestly. Oh, dear Lee, such overpraise humbles me, but let it pass. But, oh, my dear, as you unwittingly surprised my confidence, so respect it. Whisper it to no human being. No, not even to yourself in your moments of deepest solitude, she pleaded. I will not, my best beloved, my only love, I will not but I will hide it in my heart as my secret, sacred treasure, to comfort me, to strengthen me, to elevate me in all places and circumstances of my life, in the long, long sea voyages, in the midnight watches on the deck. It shall be my hope, my solace, and my consolation. Always with me, until I return to claim the greater, higher, better treasure that it promises, exclaimed Lee with enthusiasm. Oh, Lee, you have twice spoken of the sea.' 
but you will never go to sea again. You have resigned from the Navy, she said, anxiously looking in his face for a confirmation of her words. No, dear, he answered very gently. I have not resigned. I wish now that I had done so, but it is too late. Oh, Lee, why did you not, when you meant to do so? My darling, when I inherited Greenbushes, I fully intended to leave the Navy, marry my betrothed, and settle down on our farm. But when I came home, and learned that she was to be married to someone else, I did the very opposite thing to resigning. I wrote to the department and asked for sailing orders, because I could not bear to stay in the neighborhood, or even in the country, after such a bitter disappointment. Oh, my dear Lee! Never mind, love, it will all come right now. I put green bushes in the hands of Beaver and Cop, and waited to hear from the department. I received my sailing orders yesterday. That was the reason why I spoke to your father, and asked for this interview. Oh, Lee, Lee, can you not yet resign? pleaded Odalite. Yes, dear, of course I can, but not with honor. Having asked for these orders, I must obey them. I must not trifle with duty, dear Odalite, he answered gravely. Oh, Lee, and there seems no real necessity for you to go. Honor, love, gently suggested the youth. When do you leave us, and where are you going this time, Lee? I leave on the 2nd of January to join my ship at the Brooklyn Navy Yard, to sail in a few days after for the Pacific Coast. Oh, I am so sorry, but I ought not to say so, Lee. I ought not to say anything to make it harder to do your duty, and I will not. Dearest Odalite, will you say something that will make it easy for me to do my duty? Will you say that you will correspond with me regularly while I am gone, as you did during my first voyage? And will you promise that when I return, three years hence, and leave the service, as I can with honor, then, you will give me this dear hand of yours, which I cannot help feeling belongs to me only, and has belonged to me of right all the time? Say you will give me your hand, Odalite. Shall I go away happy in the knowledge that you are to be my wife on my return? Oh, yes, yes, Lee, with all my heart, she impulsively answered. Then, catching her breath in a spasmodic way, as some painful thought sped like an arrow through her heart, she added, in a subdued tone, "'But, Lee, before anything of that sort is quite settled between us, I want you to talk with my mother about it.' "'But why? Aunt Elfrida will have no objection. She likes me.' "'She liked our engagement before anyone came between us,' said Lee, growing uneasy and very thoughtful. "'Yes, I know she loves you, Lee, and liked our engagement.' "'And, of course, all will be right, but still I would rather that you should speak to my mother,' persisted the girl, with a dark foreshadowing of evil which she could not shake off. "'Well, love, I will have a talk with Aunt Elfrida to-night,' said Lee, with a laugh. "'No, no, not to-night. We shall be in the drawing-room, engaged in some Christmas games for the children. Do not take her away from the family circle to-night. To-morrow will do quite as well. You can talk to her after breakfast,' pleaded Odalite, with a shudder she could not control." "'You are cold,' said Lee. "'I have kept you out too long. "'Come, let us go home. "'I will speak to Aunt Elfrida in the morning.' "'They turned and walked homeward, "'under the moonlit wintry sky, along the shore, "'then up the wooded hill, through the lawn, "'and on to the house, "'the whole front of which was brilliantly lighted from within, "'in honor of the holy festive season. "'They entered, and threw off their wraps in the hall "'just as the tea-bell rang. "'A merry party assembled around the table, "'upon which every suitable Christmas dainty was spread.' After tea, the family and guests, with the new addition of Dr. Ingle, who dropped in, as usual, gathered in the drawing-room and engaged in merry games, in which they spent the Christmas evening. End of chapter 40